Amen. Well, that is our desire and our goal to have confidence in the day of judgment because the love of God is perfected in us. And as we come to our time in God's Word today, we're, we're going to talk about judgment. We're going to talk about life in Christ. We're going to talk about obedience, and we're going to talk about being restored to the Lord. Open your Bible with me, please, to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, we're going to look at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 6, and the title of the sermon is The Final Instruction of God. You could say, as the NAS titles this section, The Final Admonition of God, The Final Encouragement and Exhortation of the Lord to His people through the prophet Malachi. Uh, Malachi's prophecy, I think and I hope as we've studied this, it should have produced an intense level of introspection and self-examination in the Jews of that day, and especially in those who were actually God's people. Not just Jews in ethnicity, but alive in Christ, the Holy Spirit living in them, those who loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And just as it should have produced that examination in them, I pray that it has done the same for us, that we have studied the Lord's Word, that we have heard His warnings, that we have seen His rebukes, and that we have examined our own lives, that we've examined our own worship, that we've examined our own devotion unto the Lord, because that's the purpose of the Holy Scriptures. That's the purpose of the preaching and the teaching of God's Word, that His Word is built up in us and that it transforms us. The, the purpose of studying God's Word is to have His Spirit come to us to, to work that truth in us and cause us to walk according to the truth. This should always be the result of studying Scripture, that we examine our lives, that the Lord leads us to repentance, that we repent, that we change, and that we are conformed to the image of God's Son. We must be examined against the truth of Scripture. That is, the truth of Scripture is the backdrop of the examination. Ultimately, Christ is the backdrop of the examination and who He is revealed to be in Scripture. And it's the Holy Spirit that does that work. This is not a self-willed work where we are transformed and conformed to Christ. It is a work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And so as we come to the final section of Malachi, the Lord speaks of judgment, He speaks of victorious hope in Christ, and He speaks to that restoration of fellowship and relationship that we have in the Lord when His Word does its work and we are repentant and we turn from our sins. So let's look at our text, Malachi 4 verses 1 through 6. I'll ask that you please stand with me as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. Malachi chapter 4, this is the true word of God. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day is coming, the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you will tread down the wicked. 
For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now let's go before our God in prayer. God, you are exalted in the highest heaven. Glory, splendor, and majesty fill your presence. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There are none like you and there are none to whom you can be compared. Lord, you have created all things, all of the world, all of the earth, all of the universe. was created by you and it's held in the palm of your hand. So great and awesome is your power. So great and awesome are your works. And yet with this great creation, you've created a people. People made in your image. People who you have loved from eternity past. People who are set out, called out from sin, set apart from the world people who are your own possession, people, Lord, who were dead in trespasses and sins but have made, been made alive together with and in Christ. What a glorious work is your salvation. What a glorious work is this concept that you would send your son to live a holy and blameless life so that he could go to the altar so that he could be the Lamb of God and take away the sin of the world, that our sin could be laid upon his shoulders so that we could be free from its curse, so that we could be free from its penalty, so that we could be free from its power and one day be free of its presence. Again, Lord, what a glorious salvation. Lord, as glorious as the salvation is, so too will you receive glory in judgment, in condemning wicked sinners to hell for all eternity. You are glorified in that, and great and terrible is that day when you will render your final judgment. Lord, may we grasp hold of that. May we un understand the seriousness of eternity. May we understand that you really mean what you say about your judgment. May we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and may we believe that we can have life in his name. Pray, God, that you would grip us with the power of the gospel. Pray that you would grip us with the glory of the gospel. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would move in power and write your word upon our hearts and 
use your word to transform us. Lord, as our Savior prayed, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, in your scriptures, you give us all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. May we take hold of the great truth of your word. May we be transformed by it. May we be set apart from the world. May we be set ablaze with a passion and a zeal for sharing the gospel. Lord, may we be a people set apart to be your possession for your glory who are zealous for good works. Lord, would you accomplish all of this in us today by the powerful and effective working of your Holy Spirit. If your Spirit doesn't move, Lord, we've gathered in vain. The task before us cannot be accomplished by the strength and the intuition and the mind of man, but only by the working of your Spirit. So we pray that your Spirit would come and strengthen us and illumine us and cause your Word to bear fruit in us, cause us to abide in Christ. We pray all these things in our Savior's name. Amen. So again, the final instruction, the final admonition of the Lord. Um, As we read this, as this prophecy comes to a close, I think the Lord's instruction should be to us both sobering and it should be urgent. I think the Lord's proposition here to us is clear. We must recognize this imminent judgment. Recognizing the judgment, we must receive the victorious Savior. Receiving the Savior, we must remember His law, repent of our sin, and thereby be restored and reconciled to our Father. But it starts with seeing that this judgment is coming. It's a weighty judgment, but it's a weighty salvation, a glorious salvation a glorious hope. The Lord promises destruction here for the lost, but He promises victory for those who are in Christ. Malachi began this prophecy, you may recall, back in Malachi chapter 1 by saying that this was the oracle of the Word of God. Oracle speaks of this thing that is a weighty and a heavy announcement, a burdensome proclamation And this imminent judgment that we see in this last text of this prophecy is exactly that. It is weighty and it's burdensome to consider that this is what the Lord will do to those who die apart from Christ. But let us also remember that the hopeful salvation that we have in and through Christ is also a weighty, weighty thing. It's a completely different weight, but weighty. Nonetheless, and Scripture illustrates both of these ideas for us. You think about Isaiah 53, where the Lord talked about His suffering servant. It says that Christ was crushed for our iniquities, and the Father was pleased to crush Him. This is the Son of God being crushed for the burden and under the weight of sin. That's the burden, the oracle of God's judgment. But think about the burden and the weight of the glory of salvation. Romans 8, verse 18, Paul says, The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4, He is preparing for us an eternal 
weight of glory. So, so there's these two ideas that, that judgment is weighty because it's God's eternal wrath. And salvation is weighty because there's this eternal weight of glory awaiting us. And it is toward that eternal weight of glory that we press on because we desire to see our Lord and our Savior. And this is the contrasting burden that we see in this final passage of Malachi. God's judgment and His salvation. Now this text lays out, I think, really, really neatly in a series of exhortations and I want to set forth four exhortations for us to, to help move us through the text. Firstly, in verse 1, let's consider the call of the Lord to recognize the imminent judgment. Recognize the imminent judgment. Chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The urgency here, really, if you read the text before us, the urgency is, is almost tangible. The Lord says, behold, look, recognize, understand that my judgment is waiting at the door. It is burning like a furnace. Judgment is coming, and it is imminent. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not even promised our next breath. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for all men to die once, then comes judgment. And we don't know when that day of death comes. So we must be urgent in our recognizing the coming judgment. Death is promised for all men. It is one of the few promised realities that we know will come to all men. Sometimes it seems, I, th- I think it seems that we get so comfortable in this life. We get so comfortable in the present and the here and now that we forget that we are aliens. We're pilgrims. We are sojourners. This is not our eternal home. We are on a journey that goes from this life and then we pass over into eternity. In eternity, we go to our eternal home. We're either citizens of heaven or we're citizens of hell. But in the meantime, we must fight against that comfort. We must fight against that mindset that this life is ultimate. If your eternity is in hell, then yes, this is the best you will get. But if your eternity is heaven because you are washed in the blood of Christ, then this is just temporary. It's fleeting. It's all the suffering. It's all the hell that you will ever experience because one day you go to be with the Lord in glory. Knowing that we must look. We must behold. We must understand that this judgment is imminent. It's imminent for you. It's imminent for me. And it's imminent for all of creation. Every soul faces this judgment. And so the Lord kind of sets forth for us the the objects of this judgment. The Lord of hosts is the one who is speaking here, the text says. And he says that the, the day of judgment is coming for all the arrogant and for every evildoer. 
They will be like chaff. They will one day be set ablaze. So who needs to fear this coming judgment? It's the arrogant and the evildoer, the one who is dead in their trespasses and sins. And dear friend, let us remember, such were some of you. Such were all of you. Such were all of us. Such are all who are not in Christ today. The term arrogant speaks of those who are presumptuous, those who are hardened and view the Lord and His commands and His word and His glory with, with this scornful hate and disdain. It's an idea that the Jews knew very well, that they understood what arrogance was. Just look back to chapter 3, verse 15. It says, so now we, this is the Jews speaking, now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. They knew what it meant to be arrogant. The Lord gives this stern warning, all of the arrogant and every evil doer will one day be set ablaze. All of the arrogant, all of the evil doers. And all means all. Again, we just stop. Just stop and realize what the Lord says. We're, I, th- I think I saw this week that the population of the world has crossed 8 billion people. You think about how many of those people are, one, lost, or two, are lost and have never even heard the gospel. All of those are, are wicked. All of those are arrogant and evildoers who are on an express highway towards eternal condemnation if the Lord does not pluck them out, change their heart, and make them alive in Christ. That's the objects of judgment. There is also the Lord's action and His his method of judgment. And we need to consider this. this. This helps drive this into a reality to understand what the Lord says here. He says, the day that is coming will set them ablaze. They will be set on fire. They will be completely burned up. Psalm 21 says that your hand, Lord, will find out your enemies. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. Fire will devour them. And that's not just an Old Testament picture. Jesus himself In John chapter 15, he said that if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. That's the Lord's judgment for those who are apart from Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. They're kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. These are just a few pictures. Scripture is full of ideas of the judgment that awaits sinners. These are just a few pictures of what happens. This is a reality. This is a truth that awaits every man, every woman apart from Christ. Notice, if you think about John 15, it is, yes, the wicked and ungodly, but but Christ even broadens that out to help us see the full application of it, that it's those who do not abide in Him. 
It says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch, and they're gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So, so we might look and say, okay, this is the wicked and ungodly, and they are set apart for judgment. Well, even those who are not walking with and abiding in and finding life in Christ, they fall in that category. They are the wicked and the ungodly because the only source of righteousness, the only source of godliness is to abide in Christ, to be in Him, to remain in Him, to have His righteousness credited to our account. The Lord also tells us the extent of this punishment. We've kind of, I think, we're we're starting to get the picture but he goes on to say that they will be set ablaze so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. There will be no remnant. There will be no signs left of these evil, wicked doers. Calvin said here that he means that their ruin will be complete. It's as though he had said, Calvin continues, that no residue of them will be found. The destruction will be utter. It will be to the maximum extent, but all the while as we say that and think about that, we remember that God's eternal judgment is eternal and that it goes on for all eternity. So, so you just have to almost use a bit of a sanctified imagination to, to understand this, that, that this destruction will be like being destroyed every moment for the rest of eternity. It's not a destruction that happens and then you cease to exist, but rather it's eternal punishment every moment for all eternity. So we must recognize this judgment. We must behold, we must think about this, that this judgment is sure. This judgment is justly extreme. It's justly extreme because God is holy and righteous and He's sovereign and what He says is right is indeed right. So consider your own life. Consider whether or not you are in the faith. And if you are in the faith, how much do you need to be a bold proclaimer of this true and glorious gospel? Consider that this is the judgment that Christ bore on your behalf. That should bring up devotion. That should spring up love in your heart for the Lord to see this picture of judgment and understand in a way that this is what Christ took on your behalf. Do you love others enough to try to pull them off the path to this destruction? Do you believe God's word about this judgment? Because if you believe this is true, and it's in the Scripture, so it is true. And if you love others and don't want them to die and go to hell, what would you do but go and proclaim the gospel? Proclaim the gospel and then live the gospel so they can see its power. So they can see the effective working of the Holy Spirit. So they can see that it's not just words, but it is a transformation of heart and life worked by God in and through the working of the Holy Spirit. If you believe this judgment, if you love others, you will go and proclaim the gospel. And let me give you a quick pitch for our our outreach this afternoon. You have a chance today to come back and sit with people 
many of whom are probably on the path to eternal destruction, and tell them of this glorious Savior. That leads into the next exhortation. We are to recognize the imminent judgment, and we are to receive the victorious Savior, verses 2 and 3. It says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you'll go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Now, before we run through this verse, let, let me kind of show you, I think, why I and I think biblical scholars in general point this idea of the son of righteousness to being a pointer to Jesus Christ. Because I think that's what the text is saying, and we need to understand how and why we can make that step. Uh, scripture refers to Jesus as light. John referred to him as the light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay, so, so that is a pointer to Jesus being the light, but really that's not quite enough, I don't think, to get us from, from Jesus is the light to Jesus is the son of righteousness. But a couple more passages in the New Testament I, th- I think will help Help fix this in our minds. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter one, verse nineteen, and then Revelation chapter twenty-two, verse sixteen. Second Peter one, verse nineteen. It says, "So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a light shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts." That is a reference to the return of Jesus Christ, the morning star. Revelation 22 will make that even more clear for us. Revelation 22, verse 16. This is right at the end of the book of Revelation, right at the end of the canon of Scripture. This is Jesus himself speaking. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root. And the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is the morning star. And you think about the context. You know, context often gives us clue. Revelation and, and Second Peter are both books that speak to the Lord's judgment and the eternal reign of Christ and the return of Christ. Well, what are we talking about in Malachi? That exact thing, the judgment of Christ, the return and the reign of Christ. So the son of righteousness in Malachi chapter 4 is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry says that by the son of righteousness, we certainly understand this to be Jesus Christ. We understand that he would undertake to secure a believing remnant in the day of the general destruction of the Jews. If you're not convinced by that, you can go read men like John Calvin, John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, Matthew Henry, among others, they all hold to this firm idea that the Son of Righteousness is Jesus Christ. So what does the text then say? We said we're looking at this under the idea of receiving the victorious Savior. What does the Lord say about the Savior? What does He say about the Son of Righteousness? We see that the Son shall rise for and upon those who fear His name. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise 
with healing in its wings. The great and terrible day of the Lord is just that. It is great, terrible, and it's terrifying for all who are apart from Christ. But for those who are in Christ, you have a shelter. You have a shelter that remains firm and covers over you in the fiercest of storms and the, and the greatest of judgments. You are in Christ. You have a shelter in the storm. The terror will reign for the wicked, but those who fear God are secure. But there's this key. You must fear God. You must fear God. Psalm 85 verse 9 says, Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. Salvation is for those who fear the Lord. So here I'll ask the question, do you ever think about why fearing God is mentioned so often in the Scriptures, especially so often in the Old Testament? Why is that the Lord's required response to His people? We, we, we know that the Scriptures say, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So why does the Lord always come back to, especially to these Jews, to say you must fear I think the reason behind that is really clear why he says to fear rather than calling them to believe, because they did believe. They had a mental assent, a mental acknowledgement of the fact that God is the Lord and that he would send his Messiah. They understood that, but they didn't fear God. They didn't have a submissive and reverent heart toward the Almighty. They didn't have humble hearts who seek to come under the authority of the Lord God. God is holy and just, and He demands that His people respond with reverent fear. The Jews kept all the laws, right? That was what they hung their hat on, is that they were law keepers. That's how they sought to find and earn their righteousness. They were clean on the outside, but in the heart they were dirty and deceitful and wicked. They're like Jesus described. He described the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. He said, you are whitewashed tombs. On the outside you appear beautiful, but inside you are full of dead men's bones. So you, saint, today, you have belief, but do you fear the Holy One? Do you fear God Almighty? I think fear, uh, uh, one way to describe it would be that it's a proper understanding of God's holiness and flowing out of that proper understanding of His holiness, a proper understanding of His resulting hatred for sin. You see God is great and mighty and pure and righteous and holy, and you understand that because of that, he hates sin. And on one hand, you're terrified. You're, you're like Isaiah. You, you say, woe is me. I am undone at the presence of God's holiness. But then you also know that you're washed and you're clean. You're cleansed. You're sanctified in the precious blood of Christ. But nevertheless, you fear the Almighty. So do you fear God? I think that's a primary question, a primary takeaway from the prophecy of Malachi. Do you fear God?
the Lord? Do you fear the Lord as he reveals himself in Scripture? The Lord says, For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. There's this victory in the Savior. Isaiah chapter 35 kind of better explains and illustrates what Malachi is getting at here. Uh, Isaiah 35, really we could start at verse 6, but let's back up at verse 3 and, and give a little context. It says, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And then the lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth from the wilderness and streams in the desert. So on the day of vengeance, the Lord says, I will save you. I, I will make you complete. I will bring to you the fullness, the consummation, the perfection of your salvation. I'll bring healing in the wings of the Savior, and you will go and you will skip about like calves coming out of the stall. And the victory is described further in verse 3. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So there is hope, dear saint, that you have a day of vindication coming. As we suffer for standing upon the truth, one thing that holds us, one thing that presses us on is knowing that the Lord will vindicate, that he will set and make all things right. And as we remember that, as that presses us forward, let's not lose sight of the fact that for all things to be set right, for, for the Lord to vindicate us means that he's carrying out his vengeance on the lost. And yes, we glory in that because the Lord is glorified in his wrath. But let's not lose sight that these are souls that need to hear of Christ, that they might repent and believe. Spurgeon said, if hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there who is unwarned or unprayed for. We hope in the victorious Savior. We, we look forward to the vengeance and, and the vindication that he brings. But let not one go to hell without us tugging and, and, and pleading with them to come to Christ. So we recognize the judgment, we receive the Savior, and then the Lord gives us another exhortation in verse 4. He says that we must remember the Lord's law. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statues and the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Remember the law, remember the commands, remember the ordinances. Now, the question that we would, I guess, immediately ask is, is the Lord just calling us to remember his law or is he calling us to be doers of the law? Is he calling us to give mental assent to all the commands that he gave to Israel or is he calling us to know the truth and his commands and to submit to his truth, to submit to that which he reveals, that 
to which He calls us. I think clearly He's calling us to remember and to do. But let's be very clear before we think about that idea of remembering for the sake of doing. Romans 2.13 says, It's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Here's the problem. We can't do God's law perfectly. We cannot keep the law in a satisfactory way by which we can then be saved. Romans 3.20 says that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in the Lord's sight. By the works of the flesh, we cannot find the hope of salvation. But Christ fulfilled the law for us. He came under the law and he kept every portion of the law perfectly. And then he went to the cross as your sacrificial lamb and bore the curse of the law in your place. The works of the law saves and justifies no one. Only Christ's merit, only Christ's righteousness, only Christ's sacrificial death is sufficient to give you hope as you look toward the great and terrible day of the Lord. But the Lord commands us to remember His law. James tells us that faith without the works that flow out of a transformed heart is dead faith. We are to be doers. We are to know the law and to do it. The Lord makes this clear in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua 1 verse 8. It says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. You remember the word. You meditate on the word so that you do it, so that you obey it so that you keep the Lord's commands, and His commands are not burdensome when you're in Christ and when His Spirit fills you. We must get the gospel of grace right. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we must get the gospel of grace right. You think about the five solas, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, under the authority as revealed in Scripture alone. Scripture tells us what salvation does. What is the Lord's will? What is His purpose? 1 Thessalonians 4 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you put away sin. Specific to that context is sexual immorality, that you put away all immorality. But surely He's not just talking about being sanctified in that area, that you put away pride. You put away selfishness and self-centeredness. You, you put away anything that holds you back from running fully as often and with all the might that you have towards your Savior. You put away all of that so that you can be sanctified. The Lord is not pleased by those who live their lives in rebellion. He'll be glorified in them because he will punish them for all eternity unless they come to Christ. But he is not pleased with that. Even if you claim his name, it does not please him for someone to live in rebellion. But when we claim life in Christ, his will is clear. 
that we be sanctified, that we cut off the arm of the flesh, that we give all of our strength and time and energy and the, and the best of our devotion to being more like Christ. Think about the book of Malachi, obviously, because that's where the Lord makes this statement to remember the law. He has made this case against the priest and against the people, showing how they have just utterly failed to meet and, and keep his law. And what is his verdict? It's judgment and condemnation. But to those who fear his name, to those who have this fear that produces obedience, he says, they will, think about verse 17 from chapter 3, they will be mine on that day when I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. He promises us life and hope and a future if we fear his name. And fearing his name means we remember his word and do it. Fear God, remember the law, and keep his commands from the heart. We're not under the old covenant. We are new covenant believers. We are under the covenant of of grace, where we find that life and hope in Christ and Christ alone. That is the only path to salvation. But as those alive in Christ, we love Him. We love Him, and if we love Him, we keep His commands. And it's not a duty. It's not something that drags us down. It's something that we love to do because we love the Savior. How many of you don't love doing something nice for that person that you love the most in life. This is where the Jews, this is where Israel was falling so short. They knew the Lord's commands. They didn't even argue the fact that God himself was the Lord. But they did not fear him. They did not honor him. They were in effect exactly what we see described in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him and they did not give thanks. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. So ask yourself, do I know God, but I don't fear Him? It says the Lord's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then Paul goes on to describe that all ungodliness and all unrighteousness falls under this ultimate heading of knowing God, but not fearing Him, not honoring Him. So, Dear friend, don't be a fool. Don't count yourself as one who is in Christ and then go and live however you want and spurn the commands of the very Lord who saves you. So we remember the Lord's law and then fourthly we return to the Heavenly Father. Return to our Heavenly Father, verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. 
So this reference to Elijah, I think very clearly, is actually the Lord's pointer to John the Baptist. We can get that from Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. In Matthew 11, Jesus himself says, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So when the Lord says, I'll send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he's saying, I'm going to send John the Baptist. Then back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where the Lord said, I'm going to send my messenger before the Messiah. John the Baptist has this position of preeminence, this position of importance in Malachi's prophecy. Uh, It's interesting to, to see that there's two occasions where John the Baptist is really used to indicate the coming of the Messiah. You know, why why does the Lord point to that? And then he says that Jesus will come a second time. Think about it. We're at the end of the Old Testament period, right? At the end of of Malachi or maybe another prophet or two in that time, the Lord is going to go quiet. For some 450 years, he will not speak to his people as he's done for thousands of years. He goes quiet, and then he speaks again to his people in the coming of John the Baptist. It's like the Lord is saying, here comes the next step, the next part of the plan of redemptive history. The prophet Elijah will come, who is John the Baptist. And So what does all this mean? What, what do we think about John turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. If you want to turn Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 will give us a little bit of instruction and we'll actually, Lord willing, be looking at Luke 1 and Luke 2 in the month of December, so we'll get a, a fuller look maybe at this idea in, in the coming weeks. But, but what does it mean? What, what is this role of John the Baptist that Malachi speaks of, that the Lord speaks of through Malachi. Luke 1, verse 16, it says, this is the angel speaking to Zacharias when he came and told him that they would have a son. The angel says, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the power and spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So that's what John is doing. He's coming to turn the people of Israel back to the Lord. How did John do that? What was John's message? Matthew chapter 3, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is how John the Baptist restored these relationships. He called them to repent and return to the Lord. The exhortation, friends, hear this. The exhortation to return to the Lord is a call to repentance. And I want to leave that broad because we could apply the idea of repentance to so many areas in our lives. The call to return to the Lord, the the ultimate call that flows out of this idea that his judgment is coming is that you repent of your sin so that you can be restored to a right relationship with the Lord. I want to draw out a final exhortation 
before we close. Um, this is what I've, I've heard some call this sermon overtime. There, there's some exhortations we need to pull out to, to drive this text home, to drive this entire prophecy home. I'm going to start here. John was described as a messenger, as a forerunner of Christ. We who belong to Christ, we are His messengers. We are His ambassadors. We have a duty in light of that coming judgment because of who we are, because of the fact that we are His messengers and His ministers in the world. So what are we to do? We are to proclaim the gospel of Christ at every opportunity. If you are His ambassador, if you are His messenger, if you are His minister, you proclaim His word at every opportunity. So hear that as a special charge in light of, again, what we've got going on tonight. Come back ready to proclaim Christ, to point sinners to the only hope for salvation, Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus gives us this commission, doesn't He? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. You have a commission. It's not just that you preach Christ, but then you go tell people how to walk with Christ. And you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit because Christ says, I will be with you. He will be with you because he sends you his Spirit. So preach Christ in the power of the Spirit. Are you fulfilling this commission? Are you preaching Christ and teaching others to obey all that He has commanded? We must proclaim this message, but dear friends, we must also live the message we preach. We are repenting believers and believing repenters. I believe it's Paul Washer who kind of coined that idea that we believe and that leads us to repent and we repent and that leads us to believe and it's an ongoing process for the rest of our Christian lives. So you preach Christ and then you live what you preach. So we must recognize that this judgment is coming. We must receive Christ as Lord and Savior. We must remember His instruction. We must remember His law. We must repent of our sin and then we are returned to the Lord. We're reconciled to God and brought back into a right and healthy and fruitful relationship with Him. Praise the Lord, we do all these things as those who know that we only have righteousness because of Christ. We're not filling up a bucket of righteousness for our eternal security by doing those things, but we're living out that which we believe and proclaim. All the righteousness you need to be saved is credited to your account through Christ, and you cannot earn any more. You could never earn righteousness to make you acceptable to God. If you fear the Lord, you are cleansed, and you're washed, and there is healing in the wings of the Son of Righteousness. If you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven. The stain of sin is removed and you are whiter than snow because you are washed in the blood. 
remember, as Malachi began, remember the faithful love of God for his elect, that he loves you, that he has called you, and those whom he calls, he will justify, he will sanctify, and he will glorify. But knowing that, let us examine our lives in light of the entirety of the Lord's revelation, in light of the entirety of Holy Scripture. We need to walk in newness of life. We need to repent of our sin. We need to pursue righteousness and walk in the Spirit and rely upon the Spirit to grow us, to transform us, to reveal our sin to us. The great and terrible day of the Lord is coming. And he closes this prophecy by saying that those who, who aren't returned, he will come and he will smite with a curse. Those who are not in Christ, judgment will be the end. Be the end that goes on for eternity, but that judgment, there will be, there will be no more chance for repentance. But for those of us who are in Christ, we hope in Christ the Redeemer. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our source of righteousness, and He is the one whom we follow. He is the one whom we pursue. We see him as great and glorious. We see him as worthy of all devotion. And we give our lives. We don't worry about the scorn of the world. When you go to proclaim the gospel, you may be scoffed at. You may be looked at as though you're weird or, or rigid or that you have some strange religion that you practice. But none of that matters because you have Christ. And you want others to have that Christ. If you don't know Christ in such a way that you want others to have Christ, do you really know him? If, if Christ does not so fill your heart that you don't go and proclaim him, what are you doing? What is your salvation if you are transferred from the kingdom of death and darkness to the kingdom of life and light? But it doesn't phase you. It doesn't change you. You want to put that light in a basket and cover it. What kind of salvation is that? We all know the answer. It's not salvation. It's not the salvation that's revealed in the Scripture. And that doesn't mean that we're all going to be perfect. That doesn't mean that proclaiming Christ will come easy or, or even naturally. But because we fight the flesh, we, we fight against fearing others, fearing men. But it does mean we want to. It means that we have a desire to proclaim Christ. We have a desire to make him known because we see his power. We know the hope that he gives us that carries us through this life. And we want others to be delivered from the path to hell. So may we, in the power of the Spirit, Proclaim the gospel of Christ. May we live in such a way that we bring him honor and glory, that we make much of Christ, that we satisfy ourselves in him, that we delight in him forever. Let's pray. Father, we come now.